the purpose of these lessons, listener, to know you with the most basic and fundamental concept of Chabad Hasidic philosophy. And hopefully, by being familiar with the basic concept, you'll be able to pursue the study of Hasidic philosophy further, either by reading the books on Hasidic philosophy or attending the classes and other similar opportunities. However, before we go into explaining the actual concepts themselves, it is necessary just to give a general introduction to understand what is Hasidic philosophy in general. To understand this, it's important to bring in a historic fact about Hasidic philosophy, and that is that in general, the esoteric part of Torah, the mystical part of Torah, which Hasidism is associated with the esoteric part of Torah, this part of the Torah for centuries has been concealed. In fact, the first and most basic and fundamental book of mysticism is the book of Zohar, which was written by Rav Shimon Bar who lived approximately 2,000 years ago. And in that time, in the Talmudic era, this is a time where the study of Kabbalah, the study of mysticism, was reserved to very few special individuals in a generation. And there were tremendous precautions before someone could study Kabbalah. It had to be especially qualified on a very high spiritual level, and in many, many conditions were connected to studying Kabbalah, to studying mysticism. Fifteen hundred years later, there was a great Kabbalist by the name of Rabbi Yitzhak Luria, known as the Arizal, who lived in Tzvat, Israel. And in his generation, he declared that now it's a new era, that mitzvah legal is a which means not only that it's not a prohibition to study Kabbalah, but it's a mitzvah to publicize and make this knowledge known as much as possible. Even though in his generation it became more known and more accessible to the public, but nevertheless, the people who studied Kabbalah and the yeshivas that were established was mainly, again, for the Torah scholars. Not with those conditions as it was before. And it wasn't as limited as it was before. But it was still the Torah scholars who allowed themselves to be associated with the study of Kabbalah. Two hundred years later was the era of the Baal Shem Tov. And the Roshemtov, who was the founder of Hasidism, he is the one that brought the teachings of Kabbalah and mysticism, the teachings of Hasidism, to everyone and anyone. That's when it became accessible to the entire public. And the Roshemtov had many disciples. Each one taught Hasidism in his own unique and beautiful way. And that's where we have the different Hasidic movements. Then came Rabshneir Zalman of Ladi, known as the Alter Rebbe, the first Rebbe of Chabad, and he was one that founded and established the Chabad Hasidic movement. From then until now, which is a period of seven generations, in every generation, each generation, the teachings of Hasidus became more revealed and more available to the public, to the point that now the teachings of Hasidus have been published in many languages and been taught and presented in a way that it's available to everyone and anyone, men, women, and people from all walks of life.
And the question is, why was this knowledge, why was this wisdom concealed for so many generations? And why was it made available only 200 years ago? In fact, if anything, it should have been the other way around. It's known that the way Judaism and Torah sees the chain of generations, the earlier the generation, the greater the people were. In other words, the Jewish nation as a whole, and especially the rabbis and the scholars of the earlier generations, were in a much higher spiritual level, and a much greater caliber than the rabbis and the scholars of the later generations. In the biblical era we had Moses, Aaron, and the prophets, and then there were a number of generations where we had prophets. Then came a time, which is basically at the end of the destruction of the first temple, where the era of prophets was finished, had ended. We no longer had prophets, which means that we no longer had the privilege and didn't have the merit to have people of such great spiritual level. And then came the era of the rabbis and the scholars who put together the Mishnah and the Talmud. And even though they were very great rabbis and, and, and giants of Torah, nevertheless they were considered on a lower level than the rabbis and the scholars of the early generations. And of course the rabbis and the scholars of Torah, who were also giants of Torah, in the following generations are considered on a much lower level compared to the rabbis of the Talmudic era. And that's why, according to Halacha, the rabbis of the later generations don't have the authority to argue against the rabbis of the previous generations. So if in the early generations the study of Kabbalah was considered a prohibition and they weren't allowed because they were not qualified to study Kabbalah and therefore they were only able to study the revealed part of the Torah which is the Chumash, the Halacha, the Mishnah, the Talmud, and all the commentaries, but not the mysticism, not the esoteric part of Torah. How is it that in the later generations, in our recent history, when people are on a much lower spiritual level, lower than anything that ever existed before, specifically in these generations, the knowledge of Kabbalah was made accessible and available to everyone and anyone? How can this be understood? The answer to this was once given by the Alter Rebbe. The Alter Rebbe is the first Rebbe of Chabad, Reb Shnei Zaman of Ladi. And this is the way he was referred to as the Alter Rebbe. He explained this with a parable. That there was once a king who his son was ill. All the doctors who were dealing with the prince found that there is no medication which can cure the prince. One of the king's advisors says that he does have a solution. And that is that there is a certain jewel, a certain gem, that if this would be squeezed into liquid and the child would drink this liquid, this would restore his health. However, the gem that he's talking about is a very rare gem. In fact, the only one that he knows where it is, is the gem which is in the crown of the king. In fact, this is the crown jewel. This is the centerpiece, and this is the jewel that gives entire beauty to the crown. And the king's reaction was that if I do that, 
I'm destroying the jewel and I'm destroying the crown. We have to try everything that we possibly can not to destroy the crown. After a period of time, the king was informed that the condition of the child is worse than it was ever before. In fact, they don't even know how much longer he will live. And here the king said that he's ready to give them the jewel, let them grind it, and let them squeeze it into liquid, and let the child drink it. However, the doctors informed the king that unfortunately his condition is now so bad, they don't even know if he's able to drink it. He can't drink. And the king said, nevertheless, in spite of the fact that we don't even know if the liquid will go down his throat, let's try anyway. Maybe one drop will get in, and maybe that will bring him back to his health. And when you observe this story, the question comes to mind, how come that a few months ago, when the child's condition wasn't that bad, the king was not ready to grind this stone, and turn it into liquid. And now, when we don't even know if it's going to help, now the king is ready to do it. How does that make sense? And the answer is, that is in fact the reason. Because years ago, the child's condition was not that bad. Therefore, the king wasn't ready to give up the crown and wanted them to use other methods. But when the king saw that the child's condition is so much worse, and he sees that there is no hope, then the king is ready to give up the crown, the jewel, give up everything, because through this we'll be able to save the child, which is more precious to him than anything else. And even if we're not sure that it's going to help, because maybe he won't even be able to drink it, but perhaps one drop will get in and that'll do it, so the king is ready to give up the jewel and the crown. And the Alter Rebbe concluded that the same thing with Hasidus, which is the esoteric and the mystical part of Torah. This is like the crown jewel of Torah. And the previous generations, it wasn't revealed because it wasn't necessary to be revealed. Because the spiritual condition of the Jewish people was much higher. However, in the later generations, because our spiritual level is much lower, nothing like was ever before, with so much weaker spiritual spiritually. Therefore, there's a need that the esoteric and mystical part of Torah should be revealed, and this will help us restore our health spiritually. However, this also needs to be explained. First of all, how can we say that the esoteric part of Torah this will give us this strength. Isn't that, in a sense, an offense towards the other parts of Torah? As if they don't have the power to accomplish this? And the answer to this question is that this is something we find in the entire Torah. That the Torah has different parts to it, different departments. And every part of Torah is geared towards a different purpose. And if a person perhaps would ask, what can I do to have more knowledge of halacha, to know the law, how to observe Shabbos, how to observe the laws of kashrut, what I'm allowed to eat, what I'm not allowed to eat, when and how I'm supposed to eat. And one would say, you will not achieve this 
by studying Rashi, which is a commentary on the Chumash. This is not an offense to Rashi because it's not the purpose of the study of Rashi. The purpose of Rashi is something else. The part of Torah that deals with halacha, that deals with law, is the code of Jewish law. And on the other hand, if a person would say that I want to have a better understanding of the Chumash, a better understanding of the story of Joseph and his brothers, what happened, why things happened, what does this verse mean, and what does that verse mean? And someone would say, well, you will not achieve this by studying the code of Jewish law. That's also true. The code of Jewish law is not geared to explaining the Chumash, to explaining the stories in the Chumash. For this, you must study Rashi or other commentaries that their purpose is to explain the Chumash. So we see that there are different parts of Torah, there are different books, there's a tractate that deals with the laws of Shabbos, and a tractate that deals with the laws of Passover, and a tractate that deals with the laws of marriage. And each one is geared for a specific purpose. So therefore, we can also understand that there's a specific part of Torah, which is the esoteric part of Torah specifically, which is geared to give us this additional strength in this specific time of need, as it is in our time in recent history. The question though is, how is it, what is it about the Chassidus, what is it about the esoteric part of Torah, that it has in it the ability to give us this additional strength? And this will be understood once we're able to explain and describe what in essence is Hasidic philosophy. What is Hasidic? The truth is this question can be answered in many different ways. So what's being offered here is just one explanation and one way of looking at it from a specific angle. And that is it says in the Zohar that there are three things which these three things are basically what Yiddishkeit, what Judaism is all about. And everything within Judaism revolves around these three things. And the way the Zohar phrases it, these are three links to a chain. One link is Hashem, God. The other link is the Jewish people, the Jewish nation or the Jew, the individual. And the middle link that connects these two is Torah and Mitzvah. So these three things, Hashem, Torah and Mitzvah, and the Jew, these are the three things that all of Yiddishkeit revolves around. And they constitute Judaism. And the Zohar continues to say, Ubuchulu, Isnu, Sosim, Vigalia. In each one of these three things there are two dimensions. There's a revealed dimension, an external dimension, and there's a hidden and concealed dimension. So that means that when we talk about the Torah and the mitzvahs, there's a concealed dimension of Torah and mitzvahs, and there's a revealed and external dimension of Torah and mitzvahs. When we talk about the Jew, there's a concealed and hidden dimension to the Jew, and there's a revealed and external dimension to the Jew. And the same thing applies to Hashem. That is the concealed and hidden dimension of God and there is the revealed and external dimension of Hashem. This is basically the difference between the revealed part of the Torah and the concealed part of the Torah, the esoteric part of Torah. The revealed part of the Torah deals with 
and discusses and gives us an insight and understanding into the external and revealed dimension of these three things. The esoteric part of Torah gives us insight and understanding into the hidden and concealed dimension, the internal dimension of these three things. Now even though when we talk about the three things there are definitely many many layers of depth within each one of them but basically this is the difference the revealed part of the Torah deals with the external dimension and the concealed part of the Torah the esoteric part of Torah deals with the hidden and concealed dimension of these three things what is the advantage of this knowledge Number one, the advantage is on an academic level. You have a much deeper understanding of what it's all about. Number two, the advantage is in terms of how I relate to these three things. When a person has an understanding and an insight into the deeper dimension of something, then this helps you develop a much deeper sense of appreciation and connection to that which you're understanding. To explain this a little bit further, there's a question asked that if Yiddishkeit, Judaism as a whole, is really so beautiful, has so much depth to it, so much meaning to it, it enhances our life in such a beautiful way, then how come you don't find that there are millions of people lined up to run into the yeshivas, to run into the shul, people rolling up their sleeves wanting to put on tefillin? If it's all so nice and beautiful, how come everybody doesn't see it? This question was once also answered with a parable of a man who was working with a construction crew working at the bottom of a hill filled up his wheelbarrow full of stones and began to push it up the hill there he had to bring it to the top of the hill and dump the stones it was a hot humid day he's sweating has to stop every few inches to catch his breath take a cold drink of water and as he's schlepping up the hill one of the men who were working with him walks over with a bag full of stones and says, Would you mind if I add this to your load? You can imagine the reaction. I'm hardly making it with my load. You'll give me another bag of stones. And of course he was rejected. A week later, the same person was working with the stones. And one of, that day was one of his lucky days. He found a box and when he opened the box, he found jewels, gems, the most precious stones that one can only hope for and wish for. Here it was all his, put it on the wheelbarrow, covered it up that nobody should notice it, and began to schlep it up the same hill. It was an equally hot, humid day. He had to stop every few inches to take a drink of cold water. And here his friend walks over with a bag, also full of these precious stones, and says to him, I have no need for this. Would you mind if I add this to your load? And suddenly there's a face is beaming. 
a big smile across his face and says, Sure. In fact, if you have more of these stones, please bring it to me only. Don't give it to anyone else. What is the difference? How come last week he was re rejected the offer? In fact, he was very upset and he resented the fact that he even made such a suggestion. And this week he's happy and he's inviting. He wants even more. And the answer is very simple. Last week they were ordinary stones, which is only a burden. What does he need it for? This week we're talking about precious stones, valuable stones. And therefore, not only he doesn't mind the fact that he has to schlep it up and work so hard, but he's yet asking for, give me more. And the same thing with Yiddishkeit. When one looks at Yiddishkeit from the outside, sees just the exterior of Yiddishkeit. So he sees basically many, many restrictions. You're not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to eat that. You're not allowed to go here. You're not allowed to do one thing or do another thing. Many, many restrictions. And it appears to be like heavy stones, a burden in my life. Why do I need it? But when one makes the effort to explore the internal dimension of Yiddishkeit, to understand the meaning, and understanding the contents of everything that goes on in Yiddishkeit, then he realizes that these are not ordinary stones, these are precious stones. These are valuable stones. And every one of them is priceless. And when you realize that, not only that you don't run the other way, but you're asking for, give me more. And this is the way it works with everything in life. When you look at it from the outside, you have a very superficial understanding of what it's all about. And therefore, your attitude and your connection to it might be very light. When you have a deeper understanding and you're able to explore on a deeper level, then you have a deeper connection and more of an appreciation to this thing. So just like there's the basic knowledge of understanding Torah on an internal level which comes through the study of Torah. By studying Torah we have an insight into the content of what is a Jew, what is Torah and mitzvah, and who is God. But as we mentioned before, there are many layers in the depth of these three things. So the revealed part of Torah, that exposes us to the revealed dimension and the external dimension of these three things. And therefore, the level of appreciation and the level of connection will be in proportion to that knowledge. However, when one studies the esoteric and chassidic part of Torah, which this gives us an opportunity to explore the deeper, internal and hidden, concealed dimension of these three things, then this helps one develop a much deeper sense of appreciation and connection which is in proportion to this knowledge. To bring out a little bit more clearly what was just said, we can perhaps say the same thing in a little bit different words, and that is that everything in the world has an neshama and a guf, a body and a soul. A human being consists of an neshama and a guf. Animals have a body and a soul. Even plants have a body and a soul. The body is the physical, and these are the technical features of this being, and the soul is the life force that activates it and gives it the ability to perform and function. 
Yiddishkeit as a whole also has a body and a soul. The body of Yiddishkeit, the body of Judaism, are the physical and technical aspects of Judaism, which is basically the do's and the don'ts, the actual performance and observance of mitzvahs, eating matzah, putting a mezuzah on my door, lighting Shabbos candles, not doing the things which are prohibited to be done, the soul of Yiddishkeit is in the Shama of Yiddishkeit. The life force behind it is the inspiration and the love for the three things. The love for Hashem, the love for Torah and Mitzvah, and the love for another Jew and for my own identity as a Jew. And this is the difference between the revealed part of the Torah and the esoteric, Hasidic, dimension of Torah the revealed part of the Torah is geared to help a person develop and perfect the body of Yiddishkeit to get a solid knowledge and understanding of what is allowed to be done what is not allowed to be done and the goal is to accumulate as much knowledge of Torah as one possibly can and to study technically study as much Torah as one possibly can the esoteric and deeper dimension of Torah, this is geared towards the neshama of Yiddishkeit. Help a person develop his neshama of Yiddishkeit, which is his love and pleasure in being a Jew. His love for Hashem, his love for Torah and mitzvahs, and his love for his fellow Jew. And again, for his own identity being a Jew and this love is a result of the knowledge by learning and exploring the deeper dimensions of these three things this helps one develop this love the neshama of Yiddishkeit in the early generations before the times of the Bashem Tov the Jew had the neshama of Yiddishkeit naturally the Jew had a natural love for Hashem and a natural sensitivity for godliness and therefore there was no need to be exposed to the esoteric part of Torah. And the main focus was to develop the body of Yiddishkeit. And this came through studying the revealed part of the Torah. But by studying the revealed part of the Torah, it also had an indirect and subconscious effect on the Nisham of Yiddishkeit. That it reinforced and strengthened this love for Hashem and the sensitivity for godliness which is already there naturally however in the later generations in the times of the Baal Shem Tov, the Jew did not have the neshama of Yiddishkeit naturally there was no natural love for Hashem there was no natural sensitivity for godliness as it was before and this was because godliness was more concealed and there was less of an awareness of godliness in the world in general so because of this it wasn't enough just the study of the revealed part of Torah, which has an indirect effect on the neshama of Yiddishkeit, but there was a need to be exposed to the esoteric part of Torah, which is geared for this specific purpose. And it focuses on and deals directly with developing the neshama of Yiddishkeit, the life force of Yiddishkeit, which is the love for Hashem and the sensitivity for godliness, which activates the Yiddishkeit. And this is... 
However, there's still one thing that remains to be explained, and that is you're probably wondering, what is the definition of the internal dimension and the external dimension? In fact, we've explained before that there are many layers of depth within Yiddishkeit. So, of course, one layer of depth would be considered external compared to the layer of depth which is beneath it. And that layer of depth would be considered external compared to the layer of depth which is beneath that. So, where do you draw the line and how you, do you define what is the internal dimension and what is the external dimension? So to explain this, we'll choose one of the three links, namely the link of Torah and Mitzvah, and we will make an attempt to explain the, and define the internal dimension and the external dimension of Torah and Mitzvah. And hopefully, by understanding how this is in the case of Torah and Mitzvah, it will help us apply this to the other two links as well. And this will be explained, God willing, in the next lesson.